Well, good morning once again, everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. This morning in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to begin to look at what some have called the greatest sermon ever preached. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And as one author put it, he said, and I quote, It has been said, If you took all the good advice for how to live ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out the foolishness and boiled it all down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus, end quote. The Sermon on the Mount covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It was preached by Jesus from a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. I've had opportunity to stand on that very mount where we have read that sermon. It's quite powerful to be standing on the spot where we believe Jesus was when he delivered that sermon 2,000 years ago. The Sermon on the Mount consists of 107 verses and is a miracle of concision and wisdom. Now, believe it or not, this sermon is not without its controversy. In fact, it's generated quite a bit of controversy over the years and has given rise to four main schools of thought regarding it. The first school says the Sermon on the Mount lays out for us the way of salvation. These folks believe that if you ever want to see heaven, you better do the rules or do the stuff Jesus taught here in the Sermon on the Mount. Otherwise, you're not getting there. Of course, the problem with that is that neither Jesus nor any of his apostles ever taught that we got into heaven by our hard work and good deeds, right? We know we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of our good works, lest anyone should boast. In fact, I think in many ways the key verse of the entire sermon is verse 20 of chapter 5, where Jesus said to his disciples, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was an absolute shock because the Jews believed, and we'll study this more in detail when we get into the sermon, the Jews believed that if only two people made it to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee because these guys devoted their lives to good works. And if they don't make it, there's no chance I'm going to make it, right? But Jesus said, look, I want to tell you guys something. To get to heaven, you need a righteousness that exceeds theirs. They must have thought, well, that lets me out. Nobody can make it then. No, it's a righteousness that we can't produce through our own good works and effort. It's a righteousness, as Paul the Apostle would later tell us in Romans, it's a righteousness that has to come from God, appropriated to our account by faith. It's the righteousness of Christ who lived the perfect life. So that's the first group. I think we evangelicals totally reject that, of course. Second group says the Sermon on the Mount lays out for us what some have called the charter for world peace. You know, those who have given themselves over to a social gospel used to look at this sermon as containing the basic principles by which all people should live their lives by. And so they used to teach, and I'm sure some still do, that the Sermon on the Mount is the formula for the reordering of society and bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. Now, this view was quite popular around the beginning of the 20th century, when it looked like man was solving all of his problems. I mean, we were in the industrial age. I mean, technology was exploding. We had all kinds of new gadgets and, and machines that were being invented to make our lives easier. We were promised that science would solve all of man's problems. Medical science would cure all of our ills. We were fast approaching utopia. 
And the Sermon on the Mount would become the ethic for the whole world to live their lives by. Well, two world wars later, the arms race uh, and the disintegration pretty much of society, I think that most people have kind of abandoned that view. Um, But it's still around. The third group tells us that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't even apply to us today. They say it has nothing to do with modern Christians or the church. It was something that Jesus presented to Israel as he presented himself to them as their king. And the sermon contained the principles of the kingdom age, not the church age. Therefore, they say these principles were only intended for Jewish believers living during the tribulation period and then on into the millennial kingdom. And so they dispensationalized the Sermon on the Mount right out of the church age. Now, it is true, and we'll look at these as we study Matthew's gospel more intensely. It is true that Jesus often addressed the nation of Israel and the Jews in particular, exclusively at some times and some points in his ministry. But there were also many times that he addressed the church. The question is, was the Sermon on the Mount intended only for Jewish believers? Does it really talk about a time yet future? when the Jews would go through persecution and therefore they are to love their enemies, when they would be uh, established in the kingdom under the Messiah's return and these principles would be lived out on the whole earth. Well, do we find these principles stated in the Sermon on the Mount anywhere else in the New Testament? If you study the epistles, you'll find that all the principles that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, we could find in the epistles of Paul and James and Peter and so on. So to me, that tells us that this was not something that was limited to a group of Jewish believers in the future. It's something that God wants us to live right now. And that's where the fourth interpretation of this sermon comes in. That the Sermon on the Mount contains the principles of kingdom living. Now this is where I'm coming from. I I believe this sermon was not given as a way for us to get to heaven, nor was it a wonderful universal ethic that should be adopted by all mankind so that the world would finally know peace and harmony, and not even as some future standard of righteousness that's preserved for the kingdom age. I interpret this sermon as presenting the character of a heart that Jesus lives in as king, which produces kingdom living in the lives of those who are already members of the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. Remember what Jesus said at one point? He said the the, um, kingdom of God is within you. And by that he meant that to all who receive him as king, as he comes into their heart to reign, he brings with him the kingdom. And really, we are waiting as believers for the literal kingdom to be presented when Christ returns to the earth and sets it up. But that doesn't mean that we're not members of the kingdom right now. And everything that the kingdom was intended to be openly, universally, and universally and worldwide, we have in our hearts right now the joy, the peace, the love that will be spread across the whole earth when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. We have that in miniature in our hearts because the king reigns in our hearts, over our lives. So we're members of the kingdom right now. The kingdom of God is within us. Jesus is on the throne of our hearts by faith, which means that kingdom character and kingdom living is a reality for us right now. It's as author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, the main theme of this sermon is true righteousness. The religious leaders had an artificial, external righteousness based on the law. But the righteousness Jesus described is a true and vital righteousness that begins internally in the heart. The Pharisees were concerned about the minute details of conduct, but they neglected the major matter of character. Conduct flows out of character, end quote. And that brings us, I think, to a very important point that we want to stress. This sermon 
wasn't delivered to the multitudes. It was directed at the disciples. Look at the first two verses of chapter 5. We read, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up onto a mountain or a mount, and when he was seated, uh, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So it says that when Jesus saw the multitudes begin to gather, he went up onto a mount privately, and there his disciples came to him, and he taught them. That's why we need to understand this, this sermon was never intended to be a wonderful ethic that the whole world should live its life by. This is supernatural living, guys. This is supernatural territory. This sermon was only meant for those who are believers in Christ who have the Holy Spirit within them and thus have the power of God in them to live this kind of life. The world could never live this way, nor would it want to live according to the principles set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. This was only intended for Jesus' disciples to teach them and us, of course, principles for kingdom living right now, right now. As author Jim Boyce says, and I quote, The Sermon on the Mount does not encourage righteousness in a man apart from Christ. It condemns him for falling short of God's righteousness, and it drives him in desperation to the cross. Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The Sermon on the Mount calls for a core righteousness that flows, listen, from a regenerated heart, end quote. And that's why Jesus began this sermon with what is known as the Beatitudes, which lay the foundation for the rest of the sermon. Understand that they are beatitudes, not do-attitudes. They are the inward attitudes that are found in the heart of a person who is a Christian. And when a person has a changed heart, it will overflow and produce a changed life. Even as Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup and it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. The reverse of that is law. The reverse of that is law. Law tries through external rules to penetrate into the heart. It goes from out to in. But law or religion can only cleanse a, surf, a person's life in a surface kind of way. It can never reach the heart and change a heart. Christianity changes the heart and it works its way out and produces a changed life. Religion makes people like whitewashed tombs, as Jesus said to the Pharisees which on the outside they look clean and righteous and pure and holy, but inside they're still full of all kinds of defilement. That's religion. That's law. And it leads to pure frustration because you can't do what God wants you to do until you first are what God wants you to be. The first step, of course, is becoming a new creation through Christ and receiving a new heart. And then that new heart will produce a changed life. And that's why the Beatitudes are presented first in this sermon. It's because they are kingdom attitudes which then lead to kingdom actions or kingdom living, which Jesus begins to get into starting in verse 13 of chapter 5. Now, if you notice in the Beatitudes, as we study this, and of course this is an introductory message, we won't actually, as you may have figured that out, we won't actually get into the Beatitudes until next time. But it's important that we lay a foundation. If you'll notice in the Beatitudes, nine times the Lord uses the word blessed which is the Greek word makarios. And that Greek word literally means, oh, how happy. But not happiness as the world defines it. You see, the Greek word describes a person who has happiness, which is rooted in the heart and not the result of outward circumstances. We would define it as joy. You see, our English word for happy comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, hap, 
which means chance, as in whatever happens or happenstance. The world's definition of happiness is circumstantial. Therefore, it's uncertain, it's temporary, it's insecure because circumstances are always changing, aren't they? And because circumstances outwardly are always changing, therefore, my reaction to them is always changing. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm not, depending on my outward circumstance. The blessedness that Jesus is going to be talking about here in these Beatitudes is not based on outward circumstances. It's rooted in the heart, a heart that has Jesus living in that heart. And as such, it is not temporary or uncertain. It is solid and unshakable. You know, I believe it's God's desire for all of his people to experience joy. And a lot of times we Christians don't experience joy because we get our eyes off of the Lord. We get our eyes off of the eternal truths that God has placed in us through our relationship with Jesus. We, we get our eyes off of the eternal truths and onto circumstance and circumstantial situations. And we allow those things to affect our happiness, because that's outward, but that overrides our joy many times. And that's a problem. We're learning in our study in Philippians. Philippians, the theme of that epistle is joy in the Lord. And yet when you realize that Paul wrote that from prison, awaiting to stand trial before Caesar, a trial that could have ended in his execution, it's amazing that Paul could write a letter in that situation, the theme of which is joy in the Lord. You say, well, that's wonderful. How did he do it? What was the secret? You want to know the secret? Over 17 times in the first chapter alone, he mentions Jesus or Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus Christ is the secret of joy. You have to focus on Jesus. As the author to Hebrews is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. No matter what we go through outwardly, we have to take our strength from him and realize he is on the throne and all things are working somehow for our ultimate good, conforming us into the image of our Savior. It's God's desire that we all know joy as his people. And I think this was the goal of Jesus' teaching here. He's talking to his disciples now, right? Not the world. And the goal of this sermon directed to his disciples was to teach them about true happiness. At least in the Beatitudes, primarily. A happiness that he knew was not based on outward circumstances. Man, that's the world. That's the world's definition. It was a happiness or a joy that was rooted in the inward attitudes of the heart when a person is born again of the Spirit. You know, the whole concept of blessedness is often used in the Bible to describe God himself. Let me read you three passages. You can write these down. There are dozens, guys, especially in Psalms all over the place. I'll just give you two out of Psalms, one out of the New Testament. But the whole concept of blessedness is often used in the Bible to describe God himself. Psalm 68, verse 35 says, O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. Blessed be God. Psalm 72, verse 18 the psalmist said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Blessed be the Lord God. And then in the New Testament, Paul, in writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, says, According to the glorious gospel, God is committed to my trust, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he gave to me to then preach. The point I'm trying to make is that this blessedness that Jesus speaks of is something that only comes from God because it really describes his character. It's kind of like agape love, 
We have pointed out many times before, agape love is a love that comes from God himself. It can't, you can't fake it. You can't make it. It has to be given to us by God. We can't produce that kind of love within us. We don't have it in us. We have self-love. We have, you know, human love. But God's love is unconditional. It's infinite and so on. And so if we're going to have that love, it has to be given to us. And Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, that when we received Christ, God gave us his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit poured God's love into our heart. The same is true with this idea of blessedness or joy. There is no true blessedness, no true happiness, apart from God and his Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that this blessedness is only available to those who are in Christ, who are saved. The Apostle Peter tells us in the second epistle that when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, God made us partakers of the divine nature, which means that all that God is, we are a part of in a sense. I mean, God is love. Now we know his love. We can share his love. God is joy. God is peace. All the things that relate to God and his character are now available to us because we are a part of of him. We are in Christ. We are uh, partakers of the divine nature. And we see the benefits right here outlined in this sermon, really. We can know the same peace, the same inner state of contentment, the same happiness deep down within us that is known by God. And so when we talk about happiness, biblically speaking, again, we're not talking about a superficial attitude based on outward circumstances. And this is very important because Jesus begins this sermon with these Beatitudes, and we have to understand what exactly they are because of the foundation for everything else in the Christian life. And again, they are rooted in inward attitudes based on the very indwelling of God himself in our hearts. Now, as we look at the Beatitudes, they seem almost paradoxical because they're completely reversed from what we would have probably equated happiness with. I know the world. I know the completely opposite of what the world would equate happiness with. But even as believers, I think, uh, if somebody said to you, what is true happiness all about? What would you tell them? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said the really happy people are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the reviled. When the world reads that, you know what they say? I don't think I want that kind of happiness. And that's because to the people of this world, that seems absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. The things that the world values, God doesn't value. Jesus said the things that are highly esteemed by men are an abomination in the sight of God. The world doesn't appreciate meekness, humility. looks down on those qualities as being signs of weakness. The world values assertiveness, independence, that go-getter attitude that just takes no prisoners and gets to the top. Jesus didn't feel that way. It's as one author said, it's as if Jesus crept into the large display window of life and changed all the price tags. The things we consider of little or no value, Jesus assigns great value and worth to, and vice versa. You know, our Declaration of Independence states that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all live by that as Americans, don't we? 
We've all grown up with that concept that we have the right as Americans to pursue happy, happiness however we define it. And because so many people define happiness as being rich and successful, you know, beautiful, famous, popular, that's what they pursue. Because in their minds, those are the things that are going to make them truly happy. But will they? Do we find any example in the scriptures of anybody who had all of that stuff and still was miserable? But one name comes to my mind. Let me hear it. Solomon, right? Solomon is a great example of what we're talking about. I mean, Solomon was the most magnificent king that ever lived. He was a man who had everything this world had to offer. He had prestige and power as a king. He had riches and fame more than anyone has ever known or lived. He dined on the finest foods. He wore the finest clothes. He lived in the finest palace. He had thousands of servants that attended his every need and hundreds of wives and concubines so that his pleasure knew no bounds. On top of that, he was the wisest and most intelligent man that ever lived on the face of the earth. I'm excluding, of course, Jesus. But he was the wisest and most intelligent man that ever lived. So that people came from all over the known world to sit and hear his wisdom. I mean, Solomon had it all. If outward circumstances truly make a person happy, then Solomon should have been the happiest man on the face of the earth. But instead we read in the book that he wrote, the book of Ecclesiastes, we read over and over again Solomon saying these words, Vanity, vanity, everything in life is emptiness and vanity. And as we've pointed out before, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a real downer, all right? I mean, you know, you've got to almost work up the courage to read the book because you know you're going to be depressed. And so, it, you know, I mean, you know, Sometimes it takes people maybe a whole year to work up the courage to read the book, right? But you have to understand something. Solomon's favorite expression, I think it's used 29 times throughout the book, is the term under the sun, right? And that really tips us off to what Solomon was really talking about. See, Solomon, for a good part of his life, walked away from God. He started out well. We know that. His father David turned the kingdom over to Solomon and said, Solomon, my son, Know the God of your father. Serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind, because if you will seek him, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Solomon started out good. Young man, he had a big feast one day, offered I don't know how many thousands of sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, he led the whole nation in a, in a day of worship and praise and honor to God. Went home, had a dream. God appeared to him in a dream and said, Solomon, ask me whatever you will. I'll grant you one request. Whatever you want, just ask me. And Solomon said, well, Lord, I'm a young king. I don't, what do I, I don't, I'm a young man. What do I know about this king stuff? I don't know how to come in and go out among these great people of yours. I need wisdom that I might be a good king and rule your people equitably. And God said, because you did not ask for wealth nor the lives of your enemies, but you asked for wisdom to be a good leader, I will give you that and all the others. Hey, started out pretty well, didn't he? But somewhere along the line, Solomon grew uh, restless in his relationship with God. And he began to think that maybe the world still had some things that he wanted. Some things that would make him happy. That led him on a very long detour that ate up most of his life. You can read about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He talks about how he pursued pleasure and money. And he built great things thinking that that was going to be his legacy and make him happy. 
He pursued knowledge and wisdom. He started a business. And he did all of these things thinking that they were going to bring him happiness. Only to come to the end of his life and admit that he had made a terrible mistake. And he's trying to teach the rest of us not to make the same mistake that he made. Because he said, for many years I looked at life from an earthly perspective. I saw life as under the sun, right? And because of it, because that was my perspective, I lived to pursue all the things the world had to offer thinking they were going to make me happy. I've come to realize that life is not about the things that the world can give. My perspective of life is no longer under the sun or earthly perspective. It's a heavenly perspective. Solomon said, I have come to realize that we have been made eternal creatures and we really have to live our lives for eternity and not for time. Paul the Apostle put it this way. He said that when we accepted Christ, he took us and seated us in heavenly places, didn't he? Which means he wants us to have a perspective of this life that is not earthy but heavenly. He wants us to see this life from a heavenly perspective, not a perspective under the sun, you might say, where this life is all there is, and so you grab for all the gusto you can. That's not what life is all about. Jesus, Solomon said, everything under the sun, everything from an earthly perspective is vanity, vanity, emptiness, and vanity. Jesus put it this way. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. We would do well to listen to Jesus because, after all, he made us. Didn't John say that? John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. He made us. He knows what makes us tick. He knows what makes us happy. And he is trying to teach us through these beatitudes and the whole sermon that it's pure foolishness to think that you can fill up the void in your soul with the junk of this world. I mean, that's putting it bottom line, right? It's foolish for us to think that we can fill up the void in our soul with the junk of this world. And yet, folks, that's exactly what the world tries to do all day long. If your marriage is lousy, go buy a new car. If you're unhappy in your job, go shopping. You'll feel better. In fact, we have a whole industry built on this principle that if you're miserable, and who in the world isn't miserable in some way, shape, or form? If you're miserable, you need to go out and buy this or that, right? The whole advertising industry is built on that mentality, right? And so you see people, you know, buying the new car, driving down the road with this big smile on their face. Oh, do they look happy. Until they stop by the 7-Eleven on the way home to get a bunch of bananas, and some joker opens their door and smashes a big dent in the side of the new car. Now you're not so happy. See, that's the junk of the world, right? It may satisfy us for a little while, maybe make us happy because of outward circumstances, but I guarantee you, those, it's a very shallow existence. Just talking to a buddy of mine who bought a brand new computer system for Christmas. No sooner gets the thing home, set up, and next week they announce the brand new system. <laughs> and I've been there. You got the latest race car system, man. Look at this. Nobody can touch this system. It's the fastest out there. Until next week some company comes out with something even better, you're thinking, mine doesn't look so good anymore. See, that's the world. The devil is the one orchestrating the world system. 
The devil wants to keep us thinking as human beings that, you know, happiness is an elusive thing. But if you only have this or you only achieve that goal, if you only make X amount of money, if you only, you know, do this or that, you'll be buy this, own that. You'll be really you'll finally achieve happiness. That's why when somebody asked John Rockefeller one day, very wealthy man, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. Because it's always just a little bit beyond our reach, isn't it? That's the world's mentality. And so on and on it goes. So many are pursuing so feverishly the elusive concept of happiness when all the while true happiness, listen, is not found in a possession, it's not found in a pleasure. It's found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Because true happiness is the filling up of an empty heart And you can't fill an empty heart with anything this fallen world has to offer. As one author put it, he said, Jesus has come into the world to announce to man that the tree of happiness doesn't grow in the cursed earth. End quote. How true. It doesn't. In fact, Paul the Apostle said in Romans, every one of us were created with a God-shaped void in our heart. And you can stuff it full of material things, physical pleasure, experiences. You can stuff it with anything you want this world has to offer, but you will always be empty because that God-shaped void can only be filled with God himself. Very important point. Only Jesus can fill an empty heart. We've experienced that, haven't we? How many of us pursued the vain things of this world? And like Solomon, we found ourselves, whether we knew it or not, thinking vanity, vanity, Everything is emptiness and vanity. And we didn't realize what we were really hungering and thirsting for was not anything the world had to offer. It was that God-shaped void crying out to us and saying, you need to get your life right with God. You need to receive Jesus Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior. Because only he can bring the happiness and the fulfillment that you seek. Now, let me just end by saying this, okay? Everything has a context, right? Everything has a context. And this sermon has a context, too. Nothing happens in a void or a vacuum. We have to understand something that when Jesus conducted his entire ministry, of which I think the Sermon on the Mount was ground zero, I mean, his ministry was like dropping an atom bomb into society that exploded on the minds of people living at that day like an atom bomb. And the Sermon on the Mount was ground zero, folks. Here's what you had in Israel in the day of Christ. You had four main groups. And you have to understand where they were coming from because Jesus directly and indirectly preached all four of them. And by the way, they're still around today. You had the Pharisees, who were the traditionalists. You had the Sadducees, who were the materialists. You had the Essenes, who were the isolationists. And you had the um, Zealots, who were the nationalists. The Pharisees were the traditionalists. They were always looking back. They didn't want anything to change. You know, they loved the law of Moses. They wanted to always be, you know, living you know, in the old days and just the glory of Israel in the old days and, and Moses and all. They just loved the traditions and they didn't want to move past that. They were stuck in the past. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. In fact, they rejected most of the Old Testament, their Jewish scriptures, as not being inspired by God at all. They only accepted the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, as being inspired by God. But they were the materialists. 
They didn't believe in heaven. They certainly didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles or angels or resurrection. Their whole life was about the here and now. The here and now. They were the materialists. And they rejected the past and all the traditions and all that of the past. And they used the word of God to become like a, almost like a, a lump of clay that they formed into anything they wanted it to say and mean. The Essenes, well, they just got out of town, okay? The world was corrupted. It was polluted. How could we live a holy life for God with all this filth of the world around us? So they got off and they went down by the Dead Sea on the southeastern uh, side and they set up a whole community down there, the Essene community. Many think John the Baptist came from that community. But that's where they lived. They isolated themselves thinking, you know what? If we can just get away from the pollution of the world, we can live holy lives. Forgetting, as many monks have learned over the years, you take the flesh with you. You can escape the world, you can't escape your flesh. But they tried. And then you had the zealots who were the fierce nationalists. These were the folks that I don't think were given over too much of spiritual thinking. Theirs was a national cause. They hated Rome. They hated anything associated with Rome. They hated Roman occupation. They hated any turncoats, Jews, who worked for Rome like Matthew did. They were actively involved through assassins that were a part of the group to overthrow the Roman Empire. They would typically assassinate Roman officials and soldiers and so on and so forth uh, in, a, in an endeavor to bring Israel back to its national glory, independent and so on. It's interesting that we have those four groups today. We have those in the church who are the traditionalists, aren't they? I mean, they're living in the past. God love them. They're still singing hymns from 400 years ago. And they're great hymns, guys. Don't get me wrong. They're great hymns. They're awesome hymns. But I believe that God gives new music to each generation that knows him. Sing unto the Lord an old hymn or a new song, right? But they're stuck in the past. They don't want things to change. The world is changing. Technology is changing. But they feel like they're the purists. And if we change or adapt to the culture, we're somehow compromising. So you know what? Here we are, if the culture wants us, here we are. We're not changing. We're pure. And so typically these churches are made up of 70 and 80 and 90-year-old people. They're not growing. They're not, there's no new families because they're stuck in the past. They don't want to look forward to the future. Then you have the liberals, the Sadducees. And the liberals today are those that you know, have written off most of God's word. They don't think about the supernatural. Many of them don't even believe in heaven or hell. So it's right here, right? Many of these folks today, they're liberal-minded, and they believe that, okay, some of them are into the, the material things, and of course, well, many probably, uh, how that, you know, it's all about what you have right now, and they're laying up for themselves, treasures on earth, and so on. But the idea is that they're all, they're, all they're doing is they're consumed with the physical. And so it's all about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and healing AIDS and other things. And those are, those are wonderful things to do. But they're not the main thing that Jesus taught us to do, right? The one who said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Because there is a real hell. And those who refuse to come to Christ will experience it forever. And we need to understand that. Then you have your Essenes. These would be, you know, the modern monastics. Uh, those who kind of isolate themselves in their own little groups and communities. 
Sometimes, literally, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. We had plenty of monks and things who lived monastic lives out in some, you know, either in convents or monasteries and so on. And their idea, again, was get away from the world because the world is polluted, it's defiled. We just get away and be with ourselves in our own little group. We're going to be holy. And you can read some of the accounts of some monks and nuns that lived in these cloistered environments uh, very wicked many times. But there are groups that, you know, don't want to really elbow with the world. Christian groups. Now, I had an assistant pastor who was uh, on staff for a while, and he worked with a group of guys who belonged to a certain denomination. I'm not going to tell you what it was. Christian denomination. And honestly, they didn't want to grow. They wanted to stay just like they were. They didn't want new people coming in. But because Jesus commanded us to go and preach the gospel, they would no lie. They would stand on a street corner in their community with the cars racing, busy street corner, cars racing by, and they'd be preaching the gospel. Nobody's listening. Cars are racing by. I don't know what would happen if somebody stopped, got out, and said, look, how can I get saved? I, what do you do now? <laughs> Send them to Calvary. We'll take them. But there are some groups like that. They want to just isolate themselves. And then you have the uh, zealots today, who are the fierce nationalists. So a lot of Christians who think it's the goal of their, their Christianity, or what their, their whole mission should be, is to restore America to its former glory. We need to get back to the founding fathers. And folks, believe me when I tell you, I love this country. I love the founding fathers. I wish we could go back there. I don't think it's happening. But these are the folks, it's all about restoring America to its national glory. There's a problem with all four of these mindsets, although all four have some good things too, right? To the Pharisees or the traditionalists who want to live in the past, right? Who want to just, you know, focus on the old way of life. Jesus was constantly encouraging them to, you know, realize that there are people that have never grown up in church that will never probably set foot in church, you have to go out to where they are. And so Jesus talks about that, about breaking out of our traditional confines, lifting up our eyes and looking at a world that's dying and going to hell, to those who are the liberals, who focus only on things on this earth. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. To those people who are isolationists, who want to just isolate themselves and are happy with the group God's giving them, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. And to those who are fiercely nationalistic and think that it's all about restoring America to its former glory because then we can be a light to the world of God's grace and so on. Jesus taught us that he is coming again someday to bring a kingdom to this earth. And it's not going to matter if you lived in America or Europe or South America because we're all going to become members, and we are all members already who are Christians, of a coming kingdom. And as much as we thank God for our country and we love America, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's where our true loyalties lie. Because, you know, we're not the good guys wearing the white hats necessarily. We have a lot of good folks in this country. But we have a lot of evil characters that are working behind the scenes to bring about a lot of stuff that God has warned us about that are not 
what God wants. So we have to understand everything has a context. Our lives have a context. We have been placed in this world at this time for such a time as this. And we have to be careful. We don't become locked in the past where we just want to cling to all the old stuff and just live in the past when God did this and that, and even as Calvary people. There's a lot of Calvary people who are living in the past, okay? It's all about the Jesus movement in the 60s. Yeah, it was a great time. Let's move past it, okay? Because we can't live on past glory. We have to be open to what God wants to do today through our lives. To those who are materialists, we have to realize that, you know, the kingdom of God is, well, it's not about material things. We need to understand that. And all the other things. We were placed by God on this earth for such a time as this. And we have to understand that as Jesus rocked his world by breaking out of all the confined ideas and things and just preaching the truth of God, that's what we need to do. Confine yourself to God's word. Break free of all the traditions. But don't throw everything out the window and be a liberal and say, well, you know what, all that doesn't matter anyways. I can make the word of God say anything I want. I'm going to live any way I want. We have to be a light. So as we begin to get into this sermon, we'll begin to see, starting next week as we look at the Beatitudes, we're going to see what Jesus said about, says about true happiness and what it's rooted in. And once it's rooted in the heart, what kind of fruit does it produce in our lives? Very important stuff. We'll start that next week. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which brings light. We thank you, Lord, that you invaded a world of darkness, even religious darkness, Lord, uh, of Israel. And they had the truth, but they had, they had retreated into their own little belief systems and made themselves irrelevant for reaching the world around them. We want to be, Lord, used by you to touch people. We want our light to shine. We want to live in such a way as that we, we know your word, that we don't become so rigid like Pharisees, that we reject taking that word to the most neediest people in this world, which is the biggest sinners, because you love sinners, Lord. Father, we ask you to work in and through us, and as we study this incredible sermon, that you will teach us the things you want us to learn and give us grace to apply them into our lives. Lord, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.